All right, let's, uh, let's pray. And uh, the subject matter we're going to talk about this morning is uh, to try to comprehend a little bit more the whole concept of the new creation. What that is and why it is so vitally important for us to understand to live out the Christian life. Are you ready? Let's pray. Well, Father, we're so grateful to, to love you and to be loved by you. And the joy of just beginning to get a clue of what you have designed and purposed in us is absolutely phenomenal, breathtaking, inspiring. And so this morning, we just, we're just asking uh, the Spirit of God that abides in us to quicken our thinking, our imagination, our understanding of incredible truths about what you have done for us. And uh, we embrace you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, it is um, absolutely necessary to understand who we are in Christ in order to live that out. Uh, the imaginations of man uh, concerning what the Christian life is all about has in many ways affected and infected, if I could use that word, the, uh, much of the teaching over many centuries. Not all of it bad, not all of it goofy, and we're not here to suggest that we have it all together. That's not our position, our purpose, or plan at all. But to know who we are in Christ is to begin to understand the fullness of what He has in mind for us. Correct? All right. So let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about this new creation. Um, I think in order to understand who we are, we have to understand what we were. And, you know, if you studied Ephesians 2 and, and, and even Paul's writings in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 specifically, it deals with a lot of that revelation about what we were before we became saved, before Jesus made us into new creations. And that's not a very pretty picture at all. Would you agree? All right. Uh, what I'm going to do this morning is begin by reading a, a section of a message preached uh, by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. This was uh, uh, published in 1915, uh, preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle there in uh, England. And, you know, you're familiar with him, right? He's a well, well-known preacher, writer, uh, whom I have loved. And I have all of his works, by the way. Uh, in book form, that was before it was all on, it was before the, uh, Gore created the internet, and so I have all the books of his messages, and, um, and many of which uh, have influenced greatly uh, things that I've taught and so forth. So I, I admire him greatly, but you will find in this brief excerpt that I read, where he really understands and gets uh, a portion of the new covenant and the new creation, and then I think you'll see him miss it completely. And let's see, if, let's see if you can figure out where that is. See if I can sit my coffee down. It won't spill. Okay, 1915. The message is entitled, A New Creation. Okay? It's just an excerpt. The ancient prophecy shall be fulfilled to the letter, Spurgeon says. God shall dwell among men. Peace shall be domiciled on earth. And glory shall be ascribed to God in the highest. This great work of Christ, this grand design of making this old world into a new one, shall be carried into effect. 
Good so far, right? In order to accomplish this, if it hath come to pass that Christ has made for us a new covenant. The old covenant was, and he puts this in quotation marks, do this and live. The old covenant was, do this and live, right? That covenant was a sentence of death upon us all. We could not do, therefore we could not live. And so we died. The new covenant has nothing in it contingent upon creature doing, performance, religious activity. But it bases all its provisions upon Christ having done the world, saying, I will and you shall. I will, you shall. I have done it, now you go and do it. Okay? That's what he says Jesus has said. This is the language of the new covenant. Once again, still, everything is fine with me so far. The covenant of law in which we were weak through the flesh left us mangled and broken. The covenant of grace reveals God's kindness toward us, and our part thereof has been fulfilled for us by our surety, Christ Jesus. Thus it runs, and he puts in quotation marks, Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more forever. A new heart also will I give them, and a right spirit will I put within them. The old world is still under the old covenant of works, and its children perish, for they cannot carry out the conditions of the covenant. They cannot keep God's law. They break it constantly, and they die. But the children of grace are under the new covenant of grace, and through the precious blood, which is the penalty of the old broken covenant, and through the spotless righteousness of Christ, which is the fulfillment and magnifying of the old covenant, the Christian stands secure and rejoices that he's saved. Christ has thus made his people dwell under a new covenant instead of under the old one. All of that is good so far. I'm glad I didn't see hands raised. Ooh, 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 ooh. Not yet. All right. Now he goes into the next thought. And that's the clue. All right. In addition to the new covenant, Christ has been pleased to make us new men. His saints are new creatures in Christ Jesus. They have a new nature. God has breathed into, into them a new life. The Holy Spirit through the old nature Though the old nature is still there, he says, the Holy Spirit, though the old nature is still there, has been pleased to put within them a new nature. And then here comes the red marks that I put in. There is now a contending force within them. The old nature, the old carnal nature inclining to evil and the new God-given nature pointing after, or panting after perfection. So obviously Spurgeon believed in what most theologians have, uh, what, what theologians have called a dual nature identity. Okay? Do you understand what I'm talking about? The, the old man, which is what we were before we were saved, according to Spurgeon and to many believe, that that nature still resides in us even when we get saved. So we have old nature New nature abiding in the same entity. Uh, back in my seminary days, I, I took the, the Greek passages and I argued to the point, argued for the point of single nature, and uh, and had the the Greek professor whom I admire tremendously come to me and says your work is outstanding. You have just drawn the wrong conclusion, uh, and so. 
Uh, I got an A on the paper, but uh, an F in his thinking that I understood theology. I just, but by tearing the Greek down and parsing it out, it became very clear to me that what I was saying was true, that the old man, the, the crucified nature, is crucified, like the word says. What does the word say? It says it's crucified. The new nature has come. Now, let's just, let's just think out loud a little bit about this. Because um, how does anybody, and, and, and where is there any place in Scripture where God inhabited a, a sinful condition, a sinful place. Might I point your attention to the tabernacle as an example, and the temple. No unholiness was allowed. Therefore, all the, the uh, sacrificial systems were put in place. The cleansing, the, the lavers, the, the blood, everything. that the, And only certain people of the priesthood of, of, of the Levites could, could perform, certainly priestly duties. And they had all these sacrificial rites and rituals. To make sure that there was a picture painted that only perfection, only holiness, only righteousness could enter into the presence of God. Am I right? So everything leading up to the new covenant has been pointing toward the new covenant. That that is what God would have to do in man in order for God to abide in man. Right? So how in the world do we somehow now create a theology that both entities can occur in union with one another? How does that happen? How does the old and the new live in the same place without annihilating one another? How does that happen? Wasn't sinful man ushered out of the garden to keep man from being annihilated? Wasn't the grace of God to separate him from God so that he wouldn't be killed because of unholiness and unrighteousness? Yes. And so a plan could begin to unfold how God would reclaim this sinful creature and bring him to a place where his sins would be remembered no more. Right? It seems like this is so incredibly elementary and yet we have missed it and missed it and missed it and missed it over and over and over again. Well, perhaps the, uh, the theologians somehow think that we're only, we're only mostly dead and not all the way dead. And with that in mind, I have a little clip here that I might show you that where you might remember that kind of subject being dealt with. This is one of my favorite, by the way. Grandpa, Grandpa, wait, wait. What if does it mean he's dead? I mean, he didn't mean dead. Was his only faking, Seen 
Pretty cute, huh? Mostly dead. Only mostly dead. Well, is that what we were before we came into Christ? We were not mostly dead. We were all dead. And uh, by the way, conversely, we come into Christ. We're not mostly alive. We're fully alive. Fully alive. Everything that was dead has been crucified. Everything that was in opposition to righteous, holy God was taken away. All of it. All of it. You might need to say that to yourself. All of it. All of it was taken away. That had to be that way. Because if it wasn't, if that were not the case, man could not be in union with God and we could not have security and we could not have intimacy with God. It would be impossible. 
as long as there's sin or that nature, as long as that nature is still abiding in us, we cannot have what we had hoped we would have and what we think the Scripture's been telling us. We couldn't have it. It had to all be taken away. Jesus didn't just do some of it. He did all of it. When he said it's finished, he meant it. It's all taken care of. All of it. That is really good news. And to proclaim that to the world with credibility, as impossible as it sounds, necessitates that the church get this. Get this concept. Because if she gets it, she'll begin to live it out. That's the truth. As long as we think of mixture, as long as we think that there is still the old and the new living together, we'll always have a system that we'll rely on, a system to try to overcome that which is still alive, apparently, and not all dead. And so we develop the confession of sin, keep that short list, keep that list as short as possible. Well, that's not even good enough. It has to be, can't just be kept short. It has to be dealt with all the time, Right? Can't have just some sin that's held to our account. All of it has to be taken away. So if we're thinking about that confession and repentance is necessary in order to keep relationship with God, then we had better stay on that all the time, 24-7, seven days a week. Right? If it's up to us, we have a lot of work to do. And boy, has the church sold that like a bill of goods. Books and methods and systems to help people understand how their behavior is holding them back and how that needs to be dealt with in a scriptural manner. Some of it is very good. I don't mean to paint it all black and dark. Some of it is very helpful. And discipline issues are good. Praying and reading the Word and even confessing before God concerns and, and understanding why you did the things you do are very good. All of that's good. But if you're doing it to try to get relationship with God restored, or if you're doing it to try to keep in right relationship with God, you have the wrong theology, the wrong perspective. And you're saying, Christ, you didn't really accomplish it all. I know you tried. Good luck. I mean, good, good try, but now I have to do my part. And I had better get at it and get at it hard and fast. And so the church has lived like that. And little, has, little intimacy has she discovered and enjoyed because of that kind of theology. Would you agree with me? All right. Now, what does the Word say? Well, in Ephesians 2, you really ought to look through those verses. I'm not going to read them now. You, you can read them easily. Ephesians 2, verse 2 and following. Very, very clear about what we were before we were saved. Dead in trespasses and sins. Formerly walking according to the course of this world. According to the prince or the power of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience, of which we were. Formerly living in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh. Nature, by nature, children of wrath. Okay, that's, that's all those verses dealing with that. But, in Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, if you have your Bibles there, turn to me, turn, turn there with me and look at that. And let's look at what we are now. We, aren't, we weren't mostly dead, we we're all dead. And we're not just mostly alive, we're fully alive. And let's see what the Word says about that. But God, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, not mostly dead, fully dead in our trespasses, he made us, what? Alive. Alive. Fully alive. Together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. 
And he's raised us up. We were dead, but he's raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace of kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that anyone should boast. Okay? And 12 through 16 also talks on that, in that same chapter more of that being fully alive. What Christ has accomplished is absolutely amazing. Then you can write these verses down. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. I'm going to read those. It's just too good to pass up. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Always leads us in triumph. Say that. Always leads us in triumph. Always. Always. Always leads us in triumph in Christ. And manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one an aroma from death to death, the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things, he says. For we are not like many who simply peddle the word of God. Some say corrupt in terms of that interpretation. Corrupting or peddling the word of God. But as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Now, that very last word, that very last sentence in, in the way that we treat the Word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Young's literal translation says this, translates it this way, This is helpful. For we are not as the many adulterating the Word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the presence of God, in Christ we speak. Once again, I, I, I really like that. Because the presence of God is absolutely vital in terms of how we understand Him and what He's done in us. Does God literally live inside the believer? Does He? Yes, He does. And He lives inside of us by virtue of His what? Spirit. What? Spirit. Really? So how can I be unholy and holiness live inside of me? How does that happen? How can I have the unholy nature abiding in me at the same time a holy nature is abiding in me? That does not work. One is going to defeat the other, annihilate the other. It's not a struggle. It's a death-to-death battle, right? There isn't some, kind of, there isn't some little bit of compatibility. There is no compatibility. God will not reside where there's unholiness. He won't do it. In terms of his literal presence, his manifest presence, his abiding presence. Doesn't happen. Right? Doesn't mean he's not everywhere. Means that he's not abiding in relationship in that entity. So the new creation, all unholiness, had to be dealt with. All of it. Past, present, and future. Otherwise, I cannot have relationship with God. I can't have intimacy with him. Not just intimacy, I can't have relationship with him. It's impossible. So vitally important to know that the very presence of God lives in me, lives in you. He does. Not a doctrine, not a belief system. He does. He lives in you. Now, what all does that represent and mean? Oh my gosh, just way too much for our, our feeble gray matter to comprehend. But... When, she, when the word says that, that he leads us 
to victory. It leads us victory. Always leads us in victory. His presence literally living in me, guiding me and leading me. Now, all right, one, one, one point I want to spend just two or three minutes in. Golly, this time goes so fast. I see, see now why James is late all the time. I, I wrote a blog, and it just went out this week, and it was entitled, Is the New Creation Deformed? And, I, and I'm not an artist, but I, I came up with a stick figure that has one foot sticking this way and one foot stick, sticking that way in trying to describe the typical religious view of the, new co- of, the, of the new creation. Battling with one another. One going this way, one going that way. All right? uh, and, and you're constantly being pulled. Which way am I going to go? Which way am I going to go? Who's going to win out today? Who's going to win out right now? Who's, who's going to win? Is it going to be my old nature? Is it going to be my new nature? It's absolutely preposterous. And it's grotesquely wrong. That's not the new creation. It's not him. That's not you. It's not us at all. That's not what God does. That's not what Jesus died to, to grant us or give to us. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Say all things. All right. Trust and believe in what the Word says about you. Now then. You've been made holy as He is holy. You've been made righteous as He is as He is righteous. You have everything pertaining to life and godliness. Um, everything that was old, that was contrary to God, has been moved away. All things are new, and it's His work. His work, not yours. You didn't generate it, right? You didn't bring yourself to salvation by your behavior. What did you do? You believed and you received. The same thing goes on in terms of the Christian life. You want to walk victoriously, believe and receive. It really is that simple. The spirit-filled life is a birthright, a privilege, and an adventure. What it is not is an effort based upon discipline and performance and duty and religious activity. That is not the spirit-filled life based upon Scripture. He lives in you. His life abides in you. And as you believe and receive, you find that your mind cooperates with the revelation of who God is, what He said He's done, what He's accomplished. And you begin to operate like that. Begin to operate by faith. And so living by the Spirit is just that. It's easy for the, for the new creation whose mind is stayed on Christ, believing and receiving. So I'm absolutely convinced that the more... We get this thing called the new covenant and the new creation. The more we get it, the more spiritual our life is lived out. The more vital, the more powerful, the more glorious, the more intimate it is. Because it's based on truth, not based upon effort. I'm not saying there isn't effort along the way. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that you don't refuse temptation. And you don't stand your ground and refuse that and, and turn your, your face away from what is luring you. I, I'm not saying you don't do it. You do do that. Absolutely. But you do it based upon confidence and truth and intimacy and a walk with God that, that is vital and yours by birthright. You don't have to do anything to get the Holy Spirit apart from believing and receiving. You get Him that way. You walk in Him that way. Okay? I know. Surface level stuff. But isn't it good? Isn't it good? Well, there's so much more. And thank you for giving me the opportunity. And I'll be have another opportunity here not too long, I think. Speak to you again. Daryl, pray for us.
Amen. Thank you. God bless.